This morning we'll be reading together about the one who did ascend the hill of God, who did this with all of the perfect requirements that God requires from his people. And we'll be seeing that in Luke 19, verses 28 to 44. Luke 19, the verses 28 to 44. And you can find that on page 12, uh, 1210 of your Q Bible. 1,210. So Jesus has been preaching as he's slowly but surely traveling closer and closer to Jerusalem. And we read in verse 28, When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it, and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then... As he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teach, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you, that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, Surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So far, the word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it feels good to be triumphant, doesn't it? It's human nature to delight in succeeding. You can already see this in people as young as a toddler. When a toddler is praised for putting his toys in the basket, he lights up. Even if he didn't necessarily want to tidy up, the triumph over his desire not to tidy up and the ability to finish something and to be rewarded for that with praise goes a long way to make up for that. Or when you teach a young person to fish, their disgust over its sliminess and their startled reaction when it unexpectedly jumps 
with persistence is replaced with a sense of triumph for having caught something and being able to put it on the dinner table. When you run a race and you come out in first place with your friends and family, all cheering because they're proud of you, you feel great. There's a sense of triumph from facing uncertainty, new territory, and perhaps even opposition, and then coming out ahead. And then we get our situation in our passage today. Jesus seems to be setting the stage for a triumph. Everyone who has been following him for the last three years has eagerly been expecting this. And now it seems like the moment has arrived. He even tells the horrified Pharisees who call out from the sidelines to tell him to make the people stop hailing him as king. I tell you that if these should keep silent, then immediately the stones would cry out. The stones themselves would be rejoicing and celebrating him as king. But when they get within sight of the city, Christ doesn't smile and wave like royalty. Instead, he weeps. The crowd sees him as someone who's bringing the restoration of the kingdom of David. Of course, as God, he's king from eternity. But now he's being marked as king in a special way. David was the Hebrew king that really helped to put Israel on the map and firmly establish it as a regional power. God had promised him long ago that he would have a son who would reign. Jesus, of course, had all the requirements, being legally and physically descended from King David. He had a claim as the fulfillment of God's promise. And the people wondered, would this be the moment when Jesus would rise up and establish that kingdom? Jesus Christ, on the other hand, sees through all of that. He sees through the splendor and he sees through the celebration. And he looks around him and he sees a broken people. A people suffering from the consequences of sin a people in need of redemption. Many of them will turn to him, but many will also continue on their own way, and they'll see the consequences of that. And yet, despite all of that, he moves forward. In our passage today, despite everything, we'll see that the Prince of Peace enters Jerusalem in triumph. And we'll see, first of all, the preparation, then the entry, the tears, and the triumph. In the opening part of our passage, we're brought to see Jesus drawing near to Bethphage and Bethany. There are two towns which can be found fairly close to Jerusalem. At this point, we see Jesus stopping, and he's making preparations for quite a grand entry. Can you imagine the excitement and the surprise of his disciples? Jesus wants to do something impressive. He never draws this kind of attention to himself. Is this the moment they've all been waiting for? What makes it even more exciting is that Jesus is coming on a colt. Now, you would expect a king to come riding in on a war horse. And indeed, King Herod made a yearly habit of this. He came with a huge display of wealth 
and military might. You may remember from a few weeks ago how President Trump saw a military parade in France. And he said, I want that. His men are now working to organize a parade which will show a magnificent display of military force. What is the purpose of such parades? It's to show the world, to show everyone who is watching, you mess with me and I will crush you. For the Jews, it was a constant reminder that if they ever tried to rebel, Herod had the wealth and the military force to put them down with brutal efficiency. Jesus, on the other hand, is coming, riding in on the colt, the foal of the donkey. Now, normally, in comparison with the grandeur of Herod's parade, this would be laughable. A man dressed in an unimpressive manner, riding on an unimpressive creature, and he's, all he's got for cushioning underneath him is the robes of a few of his disciples. But the crowd, the crowd knew exactly what this signified. This was the fulfillment of prophecy. Many centuries before, the, prophecy Zechariah, the, the prophet Zechariah had written, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah 9, verse 9. This foal that he rode on, not ridden by anyone before, Mark tells us that, was a sign of his purity, his humility, and his holiness. It marked him out as the long-awaited king. But more than that, a king who was coming in riding on a donkey was a king who was coming in marked as coming in peace. And this echoed in the words of the people. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest, they call. How that brings us back to chapter 2 of Luke's gospel, where the angels sing, peace on earth. Didn't God tell the Israelites when they were oppressed by enemies that this would be a sign of his judgment? It was one of the many curses that would be brought down on them in Deuteronomy 28. They see God as finally having turned from his anger now, symbolized by their oppression by Rome. He's turned this anger away from him, from them. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they call. How that brings us back. If Christ is God's king, and he's bringing the symbol of peace to them, then their long years of suffering are over. As the prophet Isaiah said, Comfort, yes, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. Peace reigns in heaven. Israel's suffering is ended. The king is here. They are under the oppression of the tyranny of Rome, are they not? 
It's only logical to suggest that he will come to deliver them from the domination of Rome. They spread to everyone around the news of the mighty acts that he has done. This group of people, they are, many of them are his disciples, a crowd of his disciples who have been traveling around with him from place to place. And they've seen him carrying out miracles. They've seen him raise people from the dead. And they're spreading news of that all around, everything that he's done. They praise God for the miracles that were accomplished through him. And we read in Matthew 21, verse 10, that the whole city was thrown into an uproar because of him, with everyone asking, who is this? And the multitudes telling them, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're so close. They understand so much of these prophecies, and yet so little. It's enough to bring tears to your eyes. And indeed, it does bring tears to Christ's eye. How close they are. We can see that today too, can't we? People who are so close to seeing the kingdom of heaven, who see the brokenness of the world and who see the need for a savior, but look to be saved from all the wrong things and in all the wrong ways. Doesn't this break your heart? But if they didn't understand, and if Christ knew that this confusion would be the result of riding in the way he did, if all of this heartache and misery and the confusion of the people only a few days later when he was captured and crucified could have been avoided, then why'd he do it? Why didn't Christ just slip into the city? and let himself get caught. Why this kind of an entry? The entry was important for two reasons. First, it was important for the people to recognize him as their king. And make no mistake, by greeting him in the way that they did, they struck terror into the hearts of the rulers and the governing authorities. Can you imagine the fear that Pilate felt in the regional seat of power in Jerusalem, hearing that a multitude of people were hailing someone who was traveling into the city as their king? And this person wasn't King Herod. The second reason the entry was important was that it spoke to the Pharisees. Jesus was showing them that while they may try to thwart him at every turn, they were powerless in the face of his authority. They could not do anything to him that he didn't allow them to, nor could they stop him from doing anything that he wanted to. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. This was a response of fear on their part. First of all, they didn't want to bring the wrath of the Romans down on their heads. But more than that, they saw it as offensive, as sacrilege even, for Jesus to claim the position of the messianic king. But Jesus was saying to them that the announcement of his kingship was both unstoppable and it was necessary. It was both unstoppable and it was necessary. 
If they didn't cry out and celebrate his entry as their king, the stones themselves would do so. In the words of Habakkuk 2 verse 11, if there is something that simply must be voiced, even the stones will cry out from the wall and the beam from the timbers that answer it. Now the question then comes up, didn't Jesus know that in answering the Pharisees this way, he was guaranteeing his crucifixion later? After all, this was what eventually prompted them to give money to the person who would, as we read in Luke 22 verse 6, betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Christ absolutely knew what was coming and how this would provoke the religious rulers. But it was essential. The crowds needed to know with absolute certainty that it was their king, the person whom they had hailed as their very own king, whom they were crucifying. The son of David in the flesh. They themselves didn't know the significance of this. But it was as their king that he needed to suffer and to die. It was as their king, as the leader of the Jewish people, that he needed to sacrifice himself. The Jews saw their messianic king as someone who would deliver them. And it's in this capacity as king, this position as their rightful sovereign, that Jesus went up to that last battle on the cross. The people were reminded especially of this when Pilate had the inscription, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, written above his head. The chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, hold on a second, don't write the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the King of the Jews up there. But Pilate did not. And in doing so, he unintentionally reinforced this truth. That Jesus was dying not because he claimed to be the king of the Jews. But he was dying for his people as the king of the Jews. And in this death and the victory that followed, he not only became the king of the Jews. But being raised to life again, he was raised to the right hand of God to be made king over all. As he said in Matthew 28, verse 19, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This recognition of him as king, of him being crucified as king, was because he was also being crucified as our king. This recognition of Christ as king, with robes and palm branches being tossed on the street before him to honor him, and being waved in celebration, meant that we, too, now have a king. We, too, have someone who is not just anointed by the Spirit at the Jordan River at the beginning of his ministry, but now he was publicly acknowledged by the crowds to be the king. And this final victory, in his final victory, he would be acknowledged by God himself as this king. Jesus Christ is king. Though the world may not understand, Jesus Christ is king. But he's the kind of king that the world does not expect. As he comes within, the sight, of, within sight of the city, tears start streaming down Jesus' face. He wasn't someone who was afraid to show emotion. He cared for his people. And he showed that fact that he genuinely, genuinely cared for them. 
He showed that he loved them to everyone around. Jesus wept because when he saw the city, he didn't see an earthly seat of power from which he would be lifted up and reign over all this earthly kingdom. That's what everyone else thought, which is what made his tears so shocking to them. But he saw where his people's desperate desire for a political Messiah and deliverance from earthly oppression, from being trapped under the sandal of the Romans, would get them. Christ looked ahead through time. He saw siege works raised up against the city. He saw blood flowing in the streets. And he heard screams of terror rising up to heaven. As important as their recognizing him as king would be, it was this drive, this very drive that led them to praise him This drive to find someone as their political savior that would lead them down the path of destruction. This should be a reminder to us today. There are many of our neighbors to the south of us who every election cycle look on their candidate as their political messiah. And because of that, they'll back him on everything, no matter how damaging some of his or her views are. Here in Ontario today, too, it can be easy to pin our hopes on one person or another as our political messiah, the one who will set everything right again. But what Jesus is making clear to us here is that placing your hope in such a person, in such a way, is a straight road to disaster. There's nothing wrong with putting your support behind responsible leadership who will govern well. But there is a very real and present danger to seeing that person as the Messiah of your preferred party and as the Savior of your country or your province. More than that, he's making it clear that putting your hope in Jesus Christ himself for mere political gain or just to fix one part of your life and leave the rest alone is something that won't end well either. Christ is coming to go to the heart of things. He's going to deal with the sin that drives all those other problems. Those other problems are just symptoms of the much bigger problem of sin in our lives. Of having our own personal agendas on the throne instead of Jesus Christ. There's only one person there's only one person who can hold the position of Messiah in the fullest meaning of the word, and that person is Jesus Christ. Lifting anyone else up to that position will only end in trouble and sorrow. Lifting Jesus Christ up to only one position in your life, Messiah over only one part of your life, and lifting yourself up as Messiah over the rest of your life will result in the exact same. Christ alone fills that gap. This is what makes Christ say at the end of our passage today, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. 
For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. The NIV translates this as, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. He's speaking about his own coming into the city. It's not that they didn't recognize him as coming to them. They were praising him in the streets. But it's that they saw him as a political savior. And when he wasn't anymore, they're willing to drop him in the briefest of moments. Those very voices which joined his disciples in the streets of Jerusalem crying, Hosanna! on this Palm Sunday became the very voices that joined the Pharisees in crying, crucify him! The moment that he didn't live up to their expectations. If they had only known what their cry of peace in heaven and glory in the highest really was a cry for, things might have been so different. Because that cry, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, can be found in the soul of every human being. God has placed eternity into the hearts of men, and every single one of them look at this world seeking peace, seeking order from the chaos of their experience in this world. They say there's something not right with the world. And they proceed to look for a deliverer. Some look to themselves. The world of self-help teaches you that only you can be your own deliverer. Some look to political leaders. Some look to their church. Some look to philosophers and ideologies. Some even look to Christ but only in as far as he is someone who will fit into their picture of the world and they'll get rid of the rest the moment that it fails them. Are you such a person? Have you looked to Christ for your own benefit and do you set him aside the moment that things get hard or confusing? To these people, Christ cries out with tears rolling down his face, if only you had known the things that make for your peace. But they blinded themselves. Sure, many may have turned to Christ far later down the road, but they had subjected themselves to so much suffering in the meantime. And for those who didn't, as we read in Romans 1, mankind suppresses the truth. The better life that they hoped for outside of Christ is not all they thought it would be. Because it doesn't deliver you from yourself. And because of that, their ideologies will fail. Their political heroes will one day come crumbling down. Their church will fall short. Their pastor won't be all that they had hoped he would be. The siege that Jesus had prophesied about did happen. 
in A.D. 70, the Romans breached the walls. They stormed the Temple Mount. They desecrated the most holy place. And for the next 1,900 years, political Israel was wiped out of existence. But true peace with heaven could be found in the one true king. And King Jesus lives on. Though they had rejected him as their Messiah, Jesus lived on. And he still lives and reigns. While many saw his entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as only the briefest flicker of the flame of hope, that was just snuffed out a few days later on Good Friday by the Romans. His entry into Jerusalem accomplished everything that it was meant to accomplish. You see, this was a triumph for Jesus Christ. Although many of the Jews didn't acknowledge him, and although many of them would later die in the fighting for a political kingdom, waiting, for, waiting with a vain hope for a political Messiah to sweep in at the last moment and reestablish an earthly kingdom in the name of King David, there were still many who believed. With his tears, Jesus was helping people to recognize that not all Jews would believe. That the brokenness of sin would lead them to try to find deliverance outside of him. And that it would lead to great pain and suffering for them. With no effect. But for those who did believe, this entry into Jerusalem would take on a much richer and deeper meaning. Christ being hailed as king was the first step of him coming as the ruler who would sweep in with royal might and save his people, saving them from their sins. But he doesn't just stop with that moment. As Lord's Day 12 of our catechism puts it, he is our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. He reigns even now what honor he received on that day with those crowds pales in comparison to the honor that he receives today. Enthroned in heaven above the cherubim, arrayed in splendor and majesty. As our king, this entry into Jerusalem was simply one step in the road on the way to the war that would definitively claim this world as his own. It cleansed those who followed him. It blazed the trail for those who were coming up to the mount of the Lord, to the presence of the Lord. We sang, who shall ascend the hill of God? And it says, he who withstands the wicked's lure, whose hands are clean, whose heart is pure. Jesus Christ led the way he was the one who blazed the trail so that everybody else would be able to follow in his wake, to be lifted up to the heavenly Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem, that they would be able to begin to taste that already in this life, recognizing him as their king.
we recognize no other king as higher than our king, the Lord Jesus Christ. All earthly leaders are subordinate to him. All must bow to his authority. All dominions are answerable to him. They may try to undermine those who recognize his rule by political actions like denying funding, program funding, to people who withhold, to, to people who want to hold on to their beliefs. They might try to undermine his kingship, but they won't succeed. They can take away every bit of funding. They can take away every right to gather in peace and in safety. They can even persecute the church until it seems on the brink of extinction. But that won't take away the fact that Jesus is in control. It won't take away the fact that Jesus reigns. Where he reigns, he is untouchable. There is nothing they can do, though they rage against him. They won't take away the fact that Jesus is in control, that Jesus is our king, and that we are answerable to him above all, and that he shapes and forms all things for our good. And that also won't take away from the fact that under the rule of King Jesus, we have the only peace that matters above all, the peace from which all other peace flows out, peace with God in heaven. When you think, I can't do this alone anymore. I can't do this. You can know that he's in control. That he's got your back, no matter what happens. That if you recognize him as your king, he who is in control of everything can work even this for your good. He who's in control of everything can work even this for your good. Remember this when you're looking and you feel like you're you're facing defeat. When you feel like the obstacle that you find can't be overcome. When the sin seems too great. When the hardness of heart seems more than you can handle. Remember this. How close to defeat did Christ seem to all who were around when he was what seemed to be a failed king hanging on the cross? How close did it seem to defeat? And yet he was in control. He was working even this, what seemed to be the greatest disaster the human race ever faced. He was working even this for good. He was in control. And that was the scene of the biggest victory in the history of the world. Christ is in control. And Christ as king will be victorious. All who recognize him as their king will join in that victory. In the words of the final article of our Belgian Confession, on that day, the faithful and the elect will be crowned with glory and honor. The Son of God will acknowledge their names before His Father and His elect angels. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And their cause? 
at present condemned as heretical and evil by many judges and civil authorities, it'll be recognized as the cause of the Son of God. As gracious reward, the Lord will grant them to possess glory such as the heart of man could never conceive. Therefore, we look forward to that great day with a great longing to enjoy in full the promises of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.